Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives. One minute of screen time per episode. Who am I today? I guess I am the host of Michael Myers Minute, Professor Robert E.G. Black, dealing in existential horror, but also crafting narrative that isn't there out of the pieces that are. We are in the kitchen of the apartment Fred shares with Marie in the film, but not in Cantor's novel, because in the novel, Fred's rejection of Marie happens on his first interaction with her after returning to Boone City. And other than confirmation later that she has filed for divorce, she is not seen in the novel again. In the film, they try to make a go of it. She is even excited to see him when he first finds her at home. Oh, in case you cannot tell, I have now watched the entire film. And as I predicted, it does not nearly go as dark as the novel does. Fred never enters the bank intending to rob the place. Homer never tries to shoot himself in the head. Al, though, might be the one in the trio who comes out a little worse for wear in the film. His incessant alcohol consumption played up, and his unfortunate wife's role in some scene serving just to make sure that we notice he is drinking. But then, other than a good tirade, a well-deserved tirade, at a banquet in his honor, that drunkenness never really goes anywhere, at least by modern film standards. Here's a taste of where Al's speech turns inspirational which you will hear more about this speech a few weeks from now on this show. I want to tell you all that the reason for my success as a sergeant is due primarily to my previous training in the Corn Belt Loan and Trust Company. The knowledge I acquired in the good old bank, I applied to my problems in the infantry. For instance, one day in Okinawa, a major comes up to me and he says, Stevenson, you see that hill? Yes, sir, I see it. All right, he said. You and your platoon will attack said hill and take it. So I said to the major, but uh, that operation involves considerable risk. We haven't sufficient collateral. I'm aware of that, said the Major, but uh, the fact remains that there is the hill and you are the guys who are going to take it. So I said to him, I'm sorry, Major. No collateral, no hill. So we didn't take the hill and we lost the war. Uh, I think that uh, little story has considerable significance, but I've, uh, I've forgotten what it is. Uh, now, in conclusion, I'd like to tell you a humorous anecdote. I know several humorous anecdotes, but I can't think of any way to clean them up. So I'll only say this much. I love the Corn Belt Loan and Trust Company. There are some who say that the old bank is suffering from hardening of the arteries and of the heart. I refuse to listen to such radical talk. I say that our bank is alive. It's, it's generous. It's, it's human. And we're going to have such a line of customers seeking and getting small loans that people will think we're gambling with the depositors' money. And we will be. We'll be gambling on the future of this country. I thank you. Hardly a negative climax for his heavy drinking subplot. Of course, as Sarah Kozloff points out in her BFI exploration of the movie, quote, Millie beams with pride and the guests applaud wildly, but Al has changed nothing. As she tells Millie later when they get home, Milton's outward agreement was pure show. Al may have populist ideals about how his bank should function and how generous it should be in administering the GI Bill, but he will have to live and work within Corn Belt's conservative strictures. Within the limits of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association's tolerance, Weiler and Sherwood clearly show that these compromises have turned Al into an alcoholic. End quote. In the novel, Al has had to agree for his loan approvals to be second-guessed. Milton, we, we were, were discussing, discussing this loan to this man. man uh, What's his name? Novak. Al. Ah, yes, yes, I approved it. Milton, well, may, may I, I ask Al on what basis? basis? 
What collateral insures this loan? The glassy glance of Mr. Prue was sailing every numeral and cipher they saw. And Steese came spying, too. They clucked. There'd been too many things like this. They whispered, put their heads together, and then so questioning, so pained and disapproving, they came and challenged Stevenson. But what collateral secures this loan? Four thousand dollars? Holy smoke, my man. You can't do things like this. Collateral? repeated Al. Well, oats and apple blossoms, good enough for anyone, the best assurance in the world. He didn't say those words aloud. He muttered them within his mind. Al, on the basis of my, my own, own judgment. judgment. Novak looked to me like a good bet. You've got two thousand backed up by the government, or do you think I misinterpreted the G.I. Bill of Rights? They guarantee one half of every loan like this. Prue, but the man has no collateral, no security. But at discretion of the lender, Prue declared, with Steez behind him watching Ad and Sly. Good grief, my man. I don't know what the board will say if you keep on like this. Two thousand? Half the loan is unsecured. Let's see what Latham has to say. Why didn't you demand a mortgage on John Novak's place? Al frowned. He dug a paper out. Look here, he said. To men like that, a mortgage is a handicap. But I think I know this guy. I know his kind. He's signed this, see? It's plain as dirt. Agreement not to mortgage any property he owns until his loan is paid. And Prue laughed bitterly, and Steese assayed him with a little smile around his purling lips. No, no, said Prue. This paper, see, my friend, this paper can't secure the loan. Two thousand dollars. Now just suppose this fellow Novak died. Suppose he got in trouble with some of the creditors. Suppose they swooped down with attachments, judgments. Just suppose they got there first. Why, if they grab his property, we haven't got a mortgage. We haven't got a thing. I told him, Al said angrily, I'd not demand a mortgage. This loan's already made. So far as I'm concerned, the metal clanged within his tone, he said. Am I the manager of small loans in this bank, or am I not? Steese fluttered off in fright. But Prue still stared. His eyes were bright and bitter, as they peered beneath their thickened lids. I don't know what the board will say, but when I had your job, I used discretion. In matters of this kind, I talked to someone else. And so Al stood again before the desk of LBM, and Milton sent his secretary out and had her close the door. He tapped his fingers on the blotter pad. Milton, evidently, evidently you saw something in this man. Al, yes, yes Mr. Milton. Milton. Milton, what was it? Al, security. Collateral. In the army, I was with men stripped of everything in the way of property except what they carried around with them and inside them. I saw them being tested. Some of them stood up to it, some didn't. But you got so you could tell which ones you could count on. I tell you this man Novak is okay. His collateral is in his hands, in his heart, in his guts. It's in his right as a citizen. Prue, nobody's denying him his rights. Al. Oh, yes, we are. If we deny, deny him his chance to work in his own way. Milton. Gentlemen, there's no need to raise our voices. Of course, since you've approved the loan, the incident is closed. Now, Alton, I am sorry that I have to speak to you like this again. I must request that you consult with Prue on all transactions such as this. He pressed a button. I am telling Prue that I'll approve the loan this time. This Novak thing you made last Monday, but in the future. Al. Yes, I understand, Mr. Milton. In the future, I must exercise more caution. Milton, thank you, Mr. Prue. 
Al, you know I feel about you and always have. Well, I've always considered you one of the family, so to speak. Like my own younger brother. I picked you personally for this job, and I know you'll make good. And we do, we do have, we have every desire to extend a helping hand to returning veterans whenever possible. But we must all remember that this is not our money we're doling out. It belongs to our depositors. And we can't gamble with it. Al, I'll remember, Mr. Milton. And in the novel, Al quits his job at the bank. But I get ahead of myself. Novak will not even enter the bank until next week. If anything, by leading into it with Al's drinking and Millie tracking it, there is a hint of a suggestion that Al's tirade at the Union Club is to be taken with a grain of salt. Except, Al is right on the money, and in Cantor's novel, he not only gives Novak his loan, as in the film, but ends up on the verge of going into business with the man. It is as if the film, which is still great, mind you, does not quite trust its audience or its lead characters. Like the Academy did not trust its voters to award Harold Russell, so they put together an honorary award for his performance, but then the Academy of Members went and awarded him as best actor in a supporting role anyway. When you come out of war to quiet streets, you lug your war along with you. You walk a snail path. On your back you carry it, a scaly load that makes your shoulders raw, and not a hand can ever lift the shell that cuts your hide. You only wear it off yourself. Look up one day and vaguely see it gone. It is acceptable in the novel that these three men might be unable to fit in at their regular jobs, their regular lives, they might be angry that they might turn to alcohol or something stronger to get by. From the Things They Carried, by Tim O'Brien. Quote, They were tough. They carried all the emotional baggage of men who might die. Grief, terror, love, longing. These were intangibles, but the intangibles had their own mass and specific gravity. They had tangible weight. They carried shameful memories. They carried the common secret of cowardice barely restrained. The instinct to run or freeze or hide, and in many respects this was the heaviest burden of all, for it could never be put down. It required perfect balance and perfect posture. They carried their reputations. They carried the soldier's greatest fear, which was the fear of blushing. Men killed and died because they were embarrassed not to. It was what had brought them to the war in the first place. Nothing positive. No dreams of glory or honor, just to avoid the blush of dishonor. They died so as not to die of embarrassment. They crawled into tunnels and walked point and advanced under fire. Each morning, despite the unknowns, they made their legs move. They endured. They kept humping. They did not submit to the obvious alternative, which was simply to close the eyes and fall. So easy, really. Go limp and tumble to the ground and let the muscles unwind and not speak and not budge until your buddies picked you up and lifted you into the chopper that would roar and dip its nose and carry you off to the world. A mere matter of falling, yet no one ever fell. It was not courage, exactly. The object was not valor. Rather, they were too frightened to be cowards. By and large, they carried these things inside, maintaining the masks of composure. They sneered at sick call. They spoke bitterly about guys who had found release by shooting off their own toes or fingers. Pussies, they'd say. Candy asses. It was fierce, mocking talk with only a trace of envy or awe. But even so, the image played itself out behind their eyes. They imagined the muzzle against flesh. So easy. Squeeze the trigger and blow away a toe. They imagined it. They imagined the quick, sweet pain. Then the evacuation to Japan. Then a hospital with warm beds and cute geisha nurses. End quote. We are in the kitchen of Fred and Marie. Marie is dressed to go out. 
and has already called and made a reservation at Jackie's Hotspot. As he talks, Fred spoons coffee into the basket of the percolator to have with dinner at home. Fred, I kept hoping I was going to land a good job. At last, I've got it through my thick skull that I'm not going to get one, so I'll have to forget about Jackie's Hotspot and the Blue Devil and all the rest. Marie, well, why couldn't you get a job? Have you really been trying? Fred takes a step to the side, upstage, closer to Marie, to the sink. He adds water to the percolator. Fred. Sure, but all over town. All the employment offices in the USCS. USCS is the United States Employment Service, formed by the Wagner-Pazer Act, 6 June 1933. They all tell me I don't know anything. They say I ought to spend a couple of years as an apprentice or go to a trade school. The water off now, he looks at Marie. She steps away from the wall and walks past him. As she talks, he moves downstage, putting the basket and stem back into the pot. Marie. A couple of years? Are you going to kindergarten? She stops at the opposite wall and leans against it. And what would I be doing in the meantime? He laughs as he puts the lid on the percolator. Fred, you can always help me with my homework. He turns on a burner on the stove without looking, gets a large flame, looks down and adjusts it before setting the percolator on it. Samuel Greengard explains on Workforce.com, 22nd February 2012, quote, For veterans returning from the devastation they had witnessed during World War II to the jubilance and normalcy that awaited them at home, the world must have felt like their oyster. Soldiers came back to heroes' welcomes and ticker tape parades, just like they had conquered the world. What might not have been top of mind for those veterans was the job market that awaited them. Much like today's military personnel who leave behind the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, World War II vets returned home to financial uncertainty. That economic anxiety was the result of not-so-distant memories of the Great Depression, while today's economy is shadowed by the ghost of the Great Recession. In both the 40s and today, the issue of military personnel returning from service has created challenges for employers, policymakers, and the soldiers themselves. Assimilating veterans back into society has always been a challenge. Over the past several decades, members of the armed forces have returned from a variety of wars and conflicts. World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf War I and Gulf War II, and Afghanistan. Along the way, they have faced different political, social, and economic situations, including how society views veterans, the benefits bestowed upon them, the type of work available, and the overall state of the economy. Each generation of veterans is defined by the era in which they served, says Glenn Altshuler, Litwin Professor of America Studies at Cornell University and co-author of the GI Bill, A New Deal for Veterans. However, no period had a greater influence on the military and society than World War II. The 15.7 million veterans who returned had an undeniable impact on the American economy, as well as attitudes about how to assimilate veterans returning from deployment. Although World War II revved up the U.S. economy, bringing an unprecedented number of women into the workforce, and lowered unemployment from an estimated 9.9% for 1941 to an estimated low of 1.2% in 1944, it also raised concerns about what would happen to the 15.7 million veterans after the war ended. The sheer magnitude of returning servicemen prompted concerns about the impact on the economy and the possibility of another depression, Altshuler says. End quote. And we will come back to the GI Bill when Novak comes by the bank next week. Fred goes to a cupboard and removes plates and bowls. Marie. Fred. 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 Yeah. He goes to the table. Marie, are, are you, you really, really all right? right? He looks briefly at Marie, then returns his attention to the plates and bowls. Fred. Well, of course, course I'm all right. right. Why? Marie. I mean, in your mind. mind. Is anything in my mind. mind? You mean you, you think, think I've gone, gone goofy? goofy? 
He bends down and lifts the drop leaf side of the table. A couple steps back. Marie, I've been wondering. wondering. He laughs and opens a drawer. What was Godowski? Godorsky burned again. Fred pauses. So many people that I came to know. Clark, Stein, and March, and Callahan, Godorsky, Perkins, Stone, and Scott, Bailey, McClintock, Pee Wee Reese, recite the litany of all the down. He turns around to face Marie. Fred, where did you hear about him? Marie, you talk. And that's where we leave Fred and Marie, as he stops prepping for dinner because Marie wants to know about Godorsky. Thank you for listening. I have been Professor Robert A.G. Black, host of Michael Myers Minute, examining, so far, the original Halloween one existentially horrific minute at a time. You can find Michael Myers Minute on all the obvious podcatchers and on social media. Or you can go to lemmedrops.com for links for that show and all of my other shows, my guest spots, my Groundhog Day Project blog, and more. You can find The Best Minutes Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Please join me here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.